special report. Hey, people of the rap. Uh, this is going to be a special report, and it's about ivermectin, and many of you are going to go groan. Do we have to talk about this again? Well, it's not really about ivermectin, even though it is. It's really about the very dangerous place that we find ourselves in right now. There is a tremendous amount of disinformation, and there's a tremendous amount of misinterpretation of information. And so we have to talk about whys and wherefores, because never in my career have I seen anything like it. In medicine, at the best of times, we can have peer-reviewed papers and go over those peer-reviewed papers, and they're wrong. And for example, during my career, it was magnesium as the big one that stands out. There were these studies that showed that magnesium was really powerful to reduce mortality in patients having MI through randomized trials, and then through meta-analyses, and then with a couple more randomized trials. But then as science progressed and we did better studies and bigger studies, and they were peer-reviewed and we looked at it further, it turns out that magnesium was not working and that those original studies were wrong because sometimes it takes quite a while and a number of different studies and a number of different ways of looking at data to come up with what is the truth. And you can talk about all of the different types of biases there are. In magnesium's case, there was probably a whole bunch of papers that had been sort of researched and that didn't show an effect and it's called file draw bias. Well, no one's going to publish that. And so they put it in the file draw and the ones that were getting published were the positive ones. And it wasn't until we did big ISIS level, thousands and thousands of patients in these studies that we found, actually, you know what? It doesn't work. So what I'm saying is, again, in the best of times, this is really difficult. But when you have a global pandemic, when there's enormous incentives to get published, because everybody's just publishing stuff because they want to get it out there, any information is good information. And when large groups really do not want the economy to tank, and they want people to believe that there is a magic cure-all and not worry about it, there's some incentives. And then, of course, there's always been the snake oil salesman. And during a pandemic, you can sell a lot of snake oil. So we have to be extra diligent about where we get our information and how reliable that information is and testing that information. And I've been terrified during this time that we here at MRAP are doing the same thing. We are looking at preprints. We are discussing pharmacy bulletins. I mean, a few years ago, I would have said we would never, ever do that on MRAP. But these are times where we are so desperate for information and for new trial data that we go there. But we should go there in every one of these cases knowing how dangerous it is and not becoming attached to a therapy because it might change when we get more and better data. We can talk about, wow, some of these new antivirals look really good, but where's the data? Let's talk about it more. Let's do some more studies. Let's be very careful that we don't pile a whole bunch of effort and time into stuff that doesn't work. And with that said, let's talk a little bit more about ivermectin. And we're here with Gideon Marowitz-Katz, who's an epidemiologist from the University of Wollongong, writer for The Guardian and The Observer, and slayer of falsehoods. Gideon, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. So Gideon, why the interest in this particular area? Do you own stock in ivermectin? Why are you so interested in this set of research? <laughs> no, I, I don't own stock in ivermectin. I don't have stock in any pharmaceutical company. I actually, I, I have no funding at all from the pharmaceutical industry. All of my funding currently comes from, and in the past, comes from the Australian state and federal governments. The reason why I'm interested in it is simply because it became so incredibly popular. I mean, I think this time last year, people were starting to talk about it. There was a lot of fuss originally. This was in April, May last year about ivermectin due to Surgisphere. Surgisphere was this kind of series of fraudulent studies where researchers said they had access to a database that probably didn't exist. 
And what is Surgisphere, you might ask yourself? Well, actually, it's a healthcare analytics company that was established in 2008, originally a textbook marketing company. And since its beginning, it has been swirling in lots of issues, fake five-star reviews on Amazon and accounts that impersonate actual physicians and all this stuff. So it's a real problem. And then at the start of the pandemic, they decided that they were going to compile global health records and provide data to people and do studies from it. And it turns out that it's this data set that has been really a huge problem and has caused a number of retractions from some of the biggest journals in the world, New England Journal and Lancet. So you're going to hear about this name a lot in the coming months and years. There will be some fallout from this. They released a study on hydroxychloroquine, which was published in The Lancet, and then a study on a cardiac drug, I can't remember which one it was, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And then, slightly less well-known in some places, they had a preprint about ivermectin. And that preprint actually had a huge impact because based on that preprint, a lot of countries, particularly in South America, started using ivermectin for COVID-19 because they reported like a 70 to 80% reduction in mortality for ivermectin. The preprint was withdrawn and the countries took ivermectin off their schedule because they were like, oh, well, this is fake research. But the damage was done and people were already using ivermectin across the world. And I think it first came to my attention when people started sending me studies. You know, I get studies from people because I'm quite public about critiquing research and I do it on Twitter a lot. So people send me studies every day. I started getting sent ivermectin studies with people saying, oh, this is interesting in about, I guess, November last year, these randomized trials. And I mean, for me, when people first sent them to me, I just said, okay, well, this is so low quality, no one in their right mind would ever believe this. You know, there were trials that didn't report allocation concealment, they were in clearly predatory journals. The methods section in one trial was like half a paragraph, didn't describe dosing. Uh, there's a whole variety of crazy issues. And I was just like, well, no one would ever believe this. But then ivermectin really came to prominence based on systematic reviews where researchers looked at all of these very, very low quality trials and said that they were good and said that they weren't filled with issues, which I found very confusing. And then one in particular, the Bryant et al. meta-analysis, which was published in the American Journal of Therapeutics, said that moderate certainty evidence says that ivermectin has a large mortality benefit. And I read that, so my first, the first piece I wrote about ivermectin was just to say, I cannot believe that anyone would say that because the evidence is not, <laughs> it's not moderate certainty, it's remarkably terrible. These studies, they were terrible, they are terrible. Even before we started looking into the more serious issues with the studies. And I think this is kind of where I started with it. I remember when I first heard about this and looked at a couple of the studies, I'm like, no one's really going to use this. And it was actually Slim Razai who we did a, a short audio on back in January. We discussed it because it kept coming up again and again and again. And we felt that we clearly had to talk about it. We were being forced to talk about it because of what was going on in spite of, like you said, the low quality evidence. And it comes back to just because it says systematic review doesn't mean that the messages are of any quality that you should be using. It's that garbage in, garbage out. If you put a bunch of crappy studies together, it doesn't make a good study. And that's what we saw. But again, like you said, it rose to prominence. We heard about it again and again. And the things that we discussed back in January that people were talking about was some of the 
biological plausibility, which you can go back and listen to, but you know, putting a drug into a test tube with virus and saying that it killed the virus doesn't necessarily translate to what happens in a human being. But again, we talked more about that back in January. And then it was these observational studies that were coming out saying, you know, country X has widespread ivermectin availability and they have minimal cases and no deaths, whereas country Y has limited access to ivermectin and we see huge cases and huge number of deaths. And I know that you have seen many of these observational studies. You have talked about the limits of these observational studies, but let's discuss that for the audience here. What are the problems with those observational reports about ivermectin in different countries and the rates of COVID? Firstly, there's, there's a general problem with this sort of analysis, with ecological analyses, which is that if you're comparing two countries, there's a risk that you will be comparing them on metrics based on different populations. So you'll say, look at all the COVID deaths in country A and look at their ivermectin use. But if you actually look the people in that country, you might find that the people who use ivermectin are the more likely ones to die from COVID. And so even though a lot of people used ivermectin, actually, there's no correlation at all. But the bigger problem with most of these ivermectin ecological analyses looking at countries is that they simply don't measure ivermectin exposure in any way, shape or form. But there's one example where people looked at Africa. So they've taken countries that participate in a mass drug administration scheme, which is an MDA run by the World Health Organization and, and some other groups, where people are given an ivermectin pill either once or twice a year. And that MDA is for river blindness. And they say, well, countries that participated in the MDA have lower rates of death than countries that didn't participate in the MDA. And because those countries clearly have more ivermectin, this is evidence for ivermectin. I mean, the first issue is obviously that the death data for COVID in Africa, particularly in the lower income countries, is not great. So for example, Tanzania, which is a country included in the MDA for, or was included in the MDA for river blindness, has officially reported basically no COVID deaths or cases. The former president who died of COVID said that COVID wasn't affecting Tanzania and that it was basically a scam. Other countries like in Zambia, which also has received ivermectin through a number of MDAs, it's been demonstrated that the official count is 10 times lower than the true count of COVID. There's a very amazing study where some scientists have looked at every person who came into the morgue in Lusaka, which is the capital of Zambia, into the central morgue, and they tested every person post-mortem for COVID. And what they found was that the number of people who died with COVID symptoms and a PCR test positive for COVID was about 10 times higher than the number of people who are actually recorded as having had COVID and died of it. So we know that the death data is not good. We also know that these MDAs mostly stopped in 2020 when the pandemic came. Most of these countries stopped getting ivermectin in these large mass programs because the World Health Organization, who runs them, was mostly dealing with the pandemic thing that was happening. And even more than that, People look at the river blindness MDA because it conveniently has this association. They don't look at the lymphatic filariasis MDA, which covers countries that aren't covered by the river blindness one and also gives ivermectin. And so basically, most of these ecological analyses have no measure of how many people are actually taking ivermectin at any point in time. And they have no good measure of deaths or cases. They just use officially reported cases, which in these, a lot of countries, aren't great, particularly in Africa. As I said, it's the sort of analysis you might expect from someone who's never looked into epidemiology or global health and who thinks that if you download 
a couple of pieces of information from a publicly available data set that gives you enough information to determine causal effect. Little drop in here, Gideon actually clarified later, it's not a single occurrence. It's actually multiple occurrences of the same thing happening. This is one example, but it happens over and over again where people take this epidemiologic data and then try to come to a conclusion that ivermectin is working because it's available in these countries. But in many of these publications, they fall for the exact same problems over and over again, which is that you can't use this type of data to show efficacy of ivermectin. Well, it is this problem of association and causation are not the same thing. If you don't have any background in stats or methodology, I mean, even the most basic level, perhaps you don't know that. But if you are publishing these studies, you would think that there would be at least that little bit of understanding. We actually talked about causation versus association on a time to talk a little nerdy. People can check that one out. One of the things that Ken Milne brings up in that piece is this fantastic website where they find these random correlations between things that clearly can't have anything to do with each other. For instance, the number of movies that Nicolas Cage was in in a given year and the number of drowning victims in the United States. It's hard to put those things together. Even if you really, really dislike Nicolas Cage, you are not jumping into a pool and drowning yourself. So there, there can't be an association, a true association or a true causality there, but the correlation can be found. And that's what you're telling me is going on with ivermectin. Actually, that's not even what you're telling me. It's not even that there's a correlation because in some of these cases where people are pointing to it, ivermectin is not even available because like you said, this treatment for river blindness wasn't going on because of the pandemic that was there. So the exposure to ivermectin isn't even plausible in these situations. So we can't take that ecological data for what people are saying about it. And that's really important for us to understand. But Gideon, there are some trials, some actual trials that have been put out there that people talk about. One of the big ones, and now this is, this is a while since this one came out, is the El Ghazar study that was a randomized control trial of about 600 people. If I remember correctly, these were mostly healthcare workers or all healthcare workers looking at prophylaxis and treatment with ivermectin and basically found phenomenal differences in the group that got ivermectin. So what's the problem here? Why is that study not useful? So Elgazar is, yeah, it's a study. The, the researchers looked at 400 people who are hospitalized for COVID or had mild COVID and then 200 people for prophylaxis. So those were family members of hospital workers, I think. And the main reason why it's not useful is because it probably didn't happen. It is most likely, well, we say potentially fraudulent. It's hard to see a way in which the study reported could have happened at all. In the months since we've revealed the severe inconsistency, myself and, and some colleagues revealed the severe inconsistencies of the study, the researcher has not come out with any explanation at all, except to, I think he, he accused us of disliking the Egyptian government. That's the explanation <laughs> so far. So this study, um, it reported a 90% mortality benefit, which I'm sure you're aware, you know, the last time we found a 90% mortality benefit for an antiviral treatment was the trials of AZT for HIV in the late 80s. And I actually looked at some of those trials to, to recalculate effect sizes and compare them because I thought this is, you know, this is the biggest thing that I can find, the most likely beneficial. And yeah, so this, this trial found an effect size bigger than the trials of AZT for HIV. And there were so many problems with it. I wrote about it prior to discovering that it was potentially fraudulent. And I said, you know, this was, this was a trial. They didn't report allocation concealment. They didn't have many of the basic things that you would expect from a randomized trial. They barely reported baseline characteristics. They used the wrong statistical tests. They reported using chi-square tests on continuous numeric data, which is just impossible. Like, you couldn't do it. 
a little drop in just to clarify this point about chi-squared tests. It's just not how the statistical measure was designed. It's not designed to do what it was used for, which really gives us two different things to think about. One is that the conclusions don't actually mean what they think they mean because they've used the wrong statistical test to do that. But then secondly, and possibly even more importantly, is that the researchers, the statisticians, the methodologists behind these trials don't understand a basic statistical concept, which speaks again to their inability to really use the data and use it meaningfully to communicate with us how to use this drug or whether we should be using this drug. So all sorts of really big red flags. But then I got an email from a guy called Jack Lawrence in the UK. He's a biomedical student. He's doing his master's degree. And he said, I've been looking at this and I know you've written about this study before. Did you know that the entire introduction is plagiarized? And I have to say, I didn't. Uh, I'm not very good at picking up plagiarism. It's not something I look for. And he said, yeah, well, just enter some of the sentences into Google. And I did. And yes, basically the entire introduction and much of the methods is simply copy pasted with a word or two changed. Obviously, none of this was with attribution. So they didn't cite the papers they were plagiarizing. And then the other thing Jack said was, and look, I've downloaded the file. You can get it from a link on the website. They say it's their data and the data is fake. So I paid my $10 and downloaded the data. And indeed, the data that they said was the data used in their trial and mostly replicated their results. It was fake, very obviously fake. Most of the patients had had dates of death well before the study reported starting. They had hospitalization dates before the study reported starting. They had large blocks of copy-pasted patients. They had numerous variables that were clearly entered in by hand, as in, you know, kind of faked by hand. On one occasion, they had not a single number ending in three uh, out of 400 people. So it was very trivially fake, and the author said this was the data that they used in their study. And shortly after, uh, Jack contacted Research Square, which was the preprint website that this was on, and they retracted the study almost immediately. Yeah, so the, the study is, is, it probably never happened. It certainly didn't happen as described, and it has been retracted. So I wouldn't rely on it as evidence. And this is just one example, Gideon, because there are other studies that have had similar issues come up. And for some reason, it does seem to center on the use of ivermectin in COVID. There are a lot of these studies that they come out. And then people look at them and say, you know, this doesn't sound right. And when you do more analysis, you realize that the data couldn't possibly have been what they've shown. I, I saw one just the other day that was retracted where the author said, oh, we, um, we created a dummy set of data for people to train on that we're going to be working on our research paper. But by mistake, they thought that was the actual data. And then we printed it. And I'm like, you know, I don't do a lot of research, but I know enough not to print data from the test that we're using to train people. But this is the kind of stuff that we see over and over again. So the Elgazar study is used as an example of this fraudulent data, but it, it is not alone. There are so many of these studies. And of course, now that we are paying attention to it, we're poking more and more holes in the studies that are coming out and seeing where this data has been concocted, for lack of a better term. The data doesn't exist. It's made up, like you said, and plagiarism, all of these different issues that we're seeing but when we talked about ivermectin back in January, we did talk about some high-quality research that was going on, studies that had been registered properly and were ongoing. Have any of those studies been printed? Have they completed? Have any of them shown a benefit to ivermectin? Or I guess the question is, where do the randomized control trials, the, the good randomized control trials, stand on the role of ivermectin at this time? Yeah, sure. I mean, just before that, the Samaha trial, which is the one that was retracted a couple of days ago. The lead author said, 
Yeah, sorry, we accidentally used this entirely fake data set that we created to train a research assistant. And I think that's a, a fascinating thing to say because it's, it's rather like saying, well, we're not frauds, we're just totally incompetent <laughs> and have absolutely no idea What's what we're worse? doing with our data. I'm not sure. Is it worse to be a liar or worse to be totally incompetent? I, I feel like both are pretty bad. It also doesn't sound like something that, that actually happened. But we'll, we'll, I mean, I guess we'll see if the authors have submitted to another journal that actually is interested in publishing their work. I guess we will see. Honestly, it's really hard to keep track of all the retractions of ivermectin studies. The one that Gideon specifically is referring to here is effects of a single dose of ivermectin on viral and clinical outcomes in asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infected subjects, a pilot clinical trial in Lebanon by Ali Samaha et al. And that study was retracted on October 26th. Since this recording, we've actually seen a number of other ivermectin studies become retracted including one of the big pieces by Pierre Corey, who's part of that FLCCC. And this is one of the big studies that they put forward, clinical and scientific rationale for the MATH, M-A-T-H plus, hospital treatment for protocol for COVID-19. That study has also been retracted by the publisher for fraudulent data. Anyway, in terms of the high quality research, randomized trials that are pre-registered and well done, so far there have been two or three. So the biggest one so far has been the TOGETHER trial. Unfortunately, they still haven't pre-printed their paper, which is very frustrating. The TOGETHER trial is, is a, um, a rolling trial, so they have lots of different treatments they're testing, a very large piece of research, very transparent generally. They've posted their protocol several times, and you can read the full protocol on their website. And they've posted a series of slides and a video where they explain the results to do with ivermectin. I don't think the results will change in the preprint, but it's still very frustrating that they haven't actually posted a preprint or, or a publication anywhere. My guess is that they have submitted to Nedjum and Nedjum said, well, no, don't post a preprint or we won't publish it because that's their general policy. Together trial, biggest study looked at uh, 1,300 people, 650 person control group and 650 people who received ivermectin. They were high risk, so over the age of 50 with at least one serious comorbidity like diabetes or hypertension, but with mild disease. So mild disease, mild COVID, but serious comorbidities. And they found no benefit for ivermectin. And when I say no benefit, I mean they had a ratio of hospitalization. They had this uh, co-primary endpoint where they had either six plus hours staying in ED or admitted to hospital. And that was because the study was conducted in Brazil. And at the time, they had too few hospital beds. So a lot of people ended up just staying in ED, lying on the floor or sitting on chairs. And so they, in that primary endpoint, ivermectin had, I think it was 0.92 relative risk and the confidence intervals very significantly crossed zero. So it was about 1.2 down to 0.8. So no benefit. And death, there were slightly fewer deaths in the ivermectin group, but it was, I think it was 18 versus 21 deaths and no statistical difference whatsoever. And then there are a few other smaller, pretty good trials. There's one conducted in Argentina by Dr. Rodrigo Zoni and his team. The Vallejo et al. trial is pretty good. Again, no benefit or at best, you know, tiny benefit that was not statistically significant. Two studies, one by Dr. Mahmoud and one by Dr. Mohan. But both of those are reasonably good. And again, maybe some benefits, but they're pretty modest, you know, slight reduction in symptoms, slight reduction in disease. And then just yesterday, actually, the Malaysian Ministry of Health released the findings again in a PowerPoint slide and a press release from their large trial, which is 500 person randomized trial of ivermectin uh, versus placebo, and they found that ivermectin non-significantly increased the risk of progression to severe disease and non-significantly decreased the risk of death. So there were, I think it was three versus 10 deaths in the ivermectin versus control group. But conversely, 
there were about 60 people who progressed to severe disease in the ivermectin group versus 45 in the control. So it's, it's kind of like if you aggregate the good studies together, the studies that are at low risk of bias and definitely not fake, what you find is that ivermectin, they kind of converge on no effect. There's very little benefit in terms of mortality. Then there's the discussion about prophylaxis. The prophylaxis trials are in general awful. Most of them don't have any allocation concealment, which is just wild. Why you would conduct a randomized trial and not conceal allocation is beyond me, but most of them just don't. And one of them is likely to be also, one of the non-randomized prophylaxis trials is very likely not to have happened also. Basically, the, the prophylaxis is, is an open question, which we have no idea about. It's really interesting, the TOGETHER trial, which you mentioned, even though we haven't seen the preprint and, and we wait for the full publication, like you said, the protocol is widely available. They recently published on fluvoxamine. So we can see their methodology. And while the fluvoxamine, many of us have issues with it, the methodology is sound. They did a very nice job in putting that study together, whether you agree exactly with their conclusions or not. And so we know the methodology of the largest trial that's available on ivermectin, even though we haven't seen all of the data, that that methodology is really good. And so we do wait for that information to come out. There is obviously some more pending data. And Gideon, I know that you are not a physician, you are not a healthcare provider, but with the relative dearth of evidence, I mean, almost an absolute dearth of high quality evidence for this drug, why is it that we continue to see medical professionals tout its use? I think there are a few reasons. I mean, the first thing is that ivermectin genuinely is incredibly safe, or at least it's safe in the doses that we usually give. The Mass Drug Administration Program for Lymphatic Filariasis gives ivermectin to, I believe it's 350 million people a year in Africa, which is, you know, huge. There are very few drugs that we give on that sort of scale. I mean, maybe statins. So, in normal doses, it's very safe, and people, a lot of physicians, I, I'm sure, perhaps not so much in, in high-income countries like Australia and the US, but in, in lots of low-income countries, they're very familiar with using ivermectin. And they know that it's safe, and they trust it. And so I think for your kind of average clinician on the ground in, say, rural Bangladesh, being told that the ivermectin pill that you prescribe every day could stop COVID, even if it's relatively unlikely to be true, is better than... I have nothing anything else because you have right. no other treatments, right? You can't afford monoclonal antibodies. You can't enroll your patients in a clinical trial of uh, molnupiravir. You don't have access to most of these drugs. You can give them dexamethasone if they progress to very severe disease, but you want to try and stop the disease early. So ivermectin is a reasonable bet in that context. But I think it's harder to take that perspective when we're talking about people in high-income countries. And I think that is where you kind of get some of this charlatanry, where people have picked a position, they've said that ivermectin is a perfect drug that absolutely stops COVID, and they cannot back down from that position now that the evidence that they've used may not be real. And so they are digging down, they are turning to anti-vaccine arguments, and really it is amazing how many of these proponents of ivermectin have now come out as very strongly anti-vaccine. And they're saying that, oh, it's not just ivermectin, you can also cure COVID with metformin and melatonin and curcumin and vitamin D. So basically, I think that there's kind of two groups. There's the desperate who are willing to try anything. And for them, I have endless sympathy. And then there's the charlatan group who, who will promote anything as long as the government doesn't like it. And I think those are the two teams. Yeah, looking at those two groups is really important because you're right. This is a cheap, readily available safe medication. And when we say safe, safe in the doses that have been approved for use in humans for those indications, 
Although when you look at what some of these groups are doing, people like the FLCCC, Dr. Corey and Dr. Merrick, who have lost a lot of their credibility, if not all of it at this point, they are looking at these massive doses of ivermectin. These are not the doses that we are giving for things in the US like scabies or people are giving for river blindness or filariasis. And we don't know that those bigger doses are safe. And again, it comes back to that biological plausibility that if you give enough of one of these drugs in a test tube to COVID, it'll kill the COVID. But it doesn't mean that that dose is safe or that that will translate in humans. And of course, one of the big dangers here is giving hope to something where there isn't hope and distracting for places where there is actual hope because there's actual data telling us it works like vaccines and like some of the other drugs that we're seeing developed. The big message for, I think, our listeners to take home is that we can't just simply trust the data that we are seeing that is being touted by people who are physicians, who at one point were credible physicians. We can't just take it at face value. We really do have to look deeper into this. It's why all of us have to have at least some modest background in methodology and statistics so we can look at these and say, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't sound right. And sometimes we might not be able to exactly put our finger on what's wrong, but we know it doesn't sound right. And that's important for us to understand. It's the reason why we push for everybody to have some basic understanding of methodology and of statistics, because we need to be able to do this. And Gideon, I I really appreciate you taking the time. I know that you have spent far more of your last year and a half looking at ivermectin studies than really you should be because you have better things to do. But I know you also understand the importance of us diving into this and understanding all of the problems with this research. Now, I will say, and I think you agree with me on this one, we hope that a large, well-done, randomized, double-blind control trial comes out telling us that ivermectin works because it would be great to have a inexpensive, widely available medication with a minimal side effect profile when taken in the right doses. So we would all like that to happen. And I will tell you, and I don't want to speak for you, Gideon, but I will tell you that if that study comes out, I am happy to swallow this recording and say, I was wrong, this works, and I will prescribe it. But until we see that data, none of us should be prescribing this medication. None of us should be recommending it to our family, to our friends. We should hold out for real data that shows a benefit. And right now, we just don't have it. I think the problem with ivermectin is that people took those very low quality trials and put them in systematic reviews and said, these trials are good. These are high quality trials. And no one actually then clicks through in the systematic review and has a look at the original trial. And so something that they would have ignored because most people are able to understand the red flags of poor scientific research then gets laundered into a high quality, high value treatment when actually the evidence was never that great. And also it's probably fraud. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Gideon. It was great having you on. I hope that we don't have to revisit ivermectin again in four months, but when the data comes out, when those high quality studies are published, we'll have you back on. We'll chat about it a little bit more, but thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. And and hopefully, I mean, look, fingers crossed, I'll be eating my words and saying ivermectin reduces COVID-19 deaths. We'll both be doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Given the results from the TOGETHER trial, it's relatively unlikely, but fingers crossed, that would be a fantastic outcome for everybody. Absolutely. Thanks so much. I too think that that is extremely unlikely that ivermectin is going to have an effect or at least uh, any significant effect. I think where the real money is, is the current two antiviral agents that we have that do suggest that these agents can have a really remarkable effect. But again, again, all we have is the manufacturer with a press release. We don't have the data. We haven't dug in. So even that is very questionable, even though They were done by reputable groups. We have to wait and see. But this is, again, this is a cautionary tale. 
we are living in quite a bizarre time when it comes to trial data. And even in the best of times, in the best of times, we can get this wrong. And right now, it is extremely dangerous. So be very careful and look at the original data and be open to the fact that, unfortunately, there are forces out there that are giving us even data that is non-existent and fake, or at least very poor. Unfortunately, we'll be talking more about this, but this wasn't about ivermectin. This was about the whole situation that we have right now, needing information quickly, which opens us up to an enormous amount of bias. But I'm really thankful to have been taken through this story as it's evolved and as it is evolving.